Good morning. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Rob, and I would love to get a chance to meet you. I'll be hanging out in the lobby right after this service. The passage was very appropriate uh, this week because uh, this week we had two baptisms during the week. Uh, it was a pretty neat experience. Uh, Miles Weberg, 12 years old, was baptized into Christ by his dad, Matt, uh, right here at the church. And what was cool is sitting with him ahead of time, and his comment to me was, um, I don't deserve this but I'm ready to do this right now. And I thought, man, that's beautiful. Uh, And then Chase Edwards as well uh, was baptized into Christ. I don't know, is he in this service? He's not in the service. He was in one of the other ones, just checking. I saw Miles, so I was able to call him out. So there you go. Yes, we're celebrating that. And uh, one more announcement before we jump in this morning. If you have not uh, been uh, ever or you are new to the church, we want to invite you to Starting Point. It's taking place next Sunday, right after this service. And so you just hang out, and uh, it's an opportunity to gather with other people that might be new to the church or have questions about New Hope, about how to make this place feel a little bit more like home. And it's an opportunity for you to enjoy a warm meal, hot meal, just so you know. Uh, it's a, and that's provided. A, we go over the history of the church, the values, the beliefs, answer questions you might have, membership, how to get plugged in, Uh, And so if you haven't been to one of those, you can register for that on our website. Uh, If you have a Bible, and I would encourage you, um, if you don't, I don't mind watching the room light up. That's fine. But I also want to encourage you, if you don't have one, to get one. And we would help you do that if you need us to, so that you would bring it with you. And when you're here, we're opening God's Word together. And when you're not here, you're learning more and more how to navigate God's Word, open it up, and be ready um, to study it. Uh, in your own time as well. So while you're getting to 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and uh, we will jump in. Father, we thank you for being here. And God, I am so grateful this morning to gather with the church. The cold weather reminds us that you're in control, that your, your ways are not our ways, but that you're sovereign. So when we gather, we come, we want to submit to that that truth that you are in control of everything. So we worship you for that. And we gather around to take communion together. And we want to be reminded of the goodness that you gave us in Jesus. And Father, we open your word because we want to hear from you. And so right now we submit to your word. And we ask you to speak clearly to us. And we'll trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Years ago, I came across a a Christian apologist who shared this story, and I've shared this with you uh, before, but it just is a really good uh, way to get us started this morning. He was guest lecturing at Ohio State University, and he tells the story this way. He says, I was minutes away from beginning my lecture, and my host, who had picked me up from the airport, uh, was driving me past a new building on the campus called the Wexner Center for Performing Arts. He said, this is America's first postmodern building. I was startled and momentarily took a moment and then afterwards asked him, what is a postmodern building? He said, well, the architect said that the design of this building uh, had no design in mind at all. When the architect was asked, well, why was that? He said, well, if life is relative, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he has pillars that hold nothing up and stairways that lead you to nowhere and doors that don't open. He has a senseless building that was built, and somebody paid for it. (laughs) 
the apologist then said, so he argued that if life has no purpose and no meaning, then this building should have no design at all. And he said, that's correct. He then said, well, did he approach the foundation the same way? And all of a sudden there was silence. And he said this, you see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we would like, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. What did he mean? Well, he meant you can build whatever you want, but you can't treat the foundation the same way. Because if you treat the foundation as though there's nothing to it, it won't be able to sustain or hold up what you're trying to build. And I think this analogy, this story that he shared, is a perfect illustration for the world that we find ourselves living in. The world that we're navigating uh, as followers of Jesus, living in a culture, rubbing shoulders with people who see the world that same way. I can build whatever life I want to build. I can do whatever I want, and you can't tell me any different. I can put a pillar here and a door here and a stairwell there, and there's nothing you can tell me about the life that I'm living. Why? Because I can have that be true for me, even if it's not true for you. I'll do me, you do you. Don't try to interrupt that. Whatever's true for you can be true for you, and whatever's true for me can be true for me. And there's a philosophical word for this that we've referenced already. It's called relativism. The idea that there is no absolute truth that governs everything. The truth is dependent upon whatever you want that truth to be. One person defined relativism this way. It's really a simple but effective definition. They said this. Relativism means that everything is right and nothing is wrong. Everything's right and nothing is wrong. So you want to do something, you can do it because it can be true for you. Even if the next person doesn't want to do it because it doesn't have to be true for them, you just kind of live how you want to live and just don't get in someone else's way and whatever you want to be your truth can be your truth. The problem with that, though, is that it doesn't work. And it doesn't work for a couple of reasons. One of the primary reasons is this, that God built into the very fabric of our emotional makeup this emotion called guilt. Like whether or not you attribute what you feel guilty for to some truth that governs all things, you have felt guilty for something you've done. And God built into creation the emotion of guilt to steer us away from that which is wrong and towards that which is right. Meaning, you know the difference between right and wrong even when you're not told the difference between right and wrong. You can observe it in the world. But here's the thing. When we feel guilt, we don't like it. Guilt's not an enjoyable emotion, right? I don't enjoy it when I feel guilty, and I'm sure you don't like feeling guilty either. So what do we do? We try to cover it up and ignore it, and when we can't, we try to justify it. We try to rewrite the script. We come up with ideas like relativism that say, well, maybe what I'm feeling I shouldn't feel guilty for. I can explore and do whatever I want with my life. And so we begin to do that. We begin to justify it, and we begin to come up with these ideas, and everybody begins to live their own truth. Now, this breakdown of understanding truth, where it goes from something that is foundational to building all of life onto something that you can define for yourself, is laid out in Scripture for us. And as I was studying this week, it dawned on me that there's really two questions that are asked in the Bible that give us this culmination of the loss of truth, okay? The, the beginning of it, where truth begins to get lost, is asked in a question, the form of a question, the very beginning of your Bible in the book of Genesis. It's when Satan is with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he begins to tempt them by asking them, did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees that are here, not to eat the, from that tree that's right there in the garden? 
And he begins with a question that begins to get them to wonder, well, maybe we can reinterpret this thing. And here's the thing. Most of us know the difference between right and wrong. Where we get tripped up and where Satan gets a little bit of a grip on each of our lives is what Charles Spurgeon used to say was not the difference between right and wrong, but the difference between right and almost right. It's that, well, that's not right, but it's not so far off that it's far-fetched. And this is where Satan begins to work, and he's been working on the human heart ever since. He comes alongside all of us, and he asks this question, did God really say? Did God really say? I mean, did he really say that sex and having sex with another person should be reserved for a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Did he really say that? I mean, shouldn't you be able to explore your sexuality and kind of do whatever you want with yourself? It's your body. It should be your decision. You do whatever you want. Did God really say that? Did God really say that it's wise for you to take a day off every week and rest, to not overwork? I mean, you could work more and make more money. Shouldn't you just put more effort into this? Did God really say that you should discipline your children as you raise them? Did he really say that so that you raise them to become whole people? I mean, wouldn't it be better if you could just be their best friend? Shouldn't you be allowed to do whatever you want? You can raise your kids however you want to raise them. Why do you have to discipline them? Did God really say? Relativism presents that question to us over and over again. Did God really say? I mean, let's start to drift away from what God said. You can reinterpret this to be whatever you want it to be. And so the drift begins, but here's the other part of that. It doesn't work on a practical level either, not just because God embedded guilt into the fabric of creation, but it doesn't work on a practical level either. It breaks down. I mean, picture if every single one of us in the room just began to go and do whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, however we wanted to do it, with no worry about any ramifications whatsoever. I mean, cheat on your spouse, steal, lie. Go get what you need out of life. You can hurt people, and if some, you're mad at someone, you can kill them. Just murder them. It breaks down. It just doesn't even, it doesn't even work. Because if relativism was, was true, and we could just kind of do whatever we want with whatever we want, we don't need laws, and we don't need the police, and we don't need military or structure or any form of leadership. You go do what you want to do, and I'll go do what I want to do, and that's all there is to this idea of truth. And so the drift begins with a question. Did God really say And it culminates in a second question that I find in the text. You drift far enough from the truth, it becomes harder and harder to see it until you can't see it at all. And this is illustrated by a question that's asked by Pilate to Jesus right before he's crucified. As Pilate is standing there with him, a man who had no moral compass, who had drifted so far from any idea of truth, who had redefined it to be whatever he wanted it to be, looks at Jesus and he says, what is truth? Because that's the question that you will inevitably ask the longer you spend away from the truth, the more you drift further and further from truth because you're answering the question of the enemy. I mean, did God really say that? And we get further and further from what God defines as true in his word. You can't even see it at all. And you begin to say, well, what's true anyway? Truth can just be whatever you want truth to be. So you keep listening to that relativistic temptation that the enemy puts before you, and inevitably you will drift further and further from it. So the question is, how do you protect yourself from that? How do you protect yourself from that tempting whisper of the enemy? And here's the thing. It is tempting. He's not going to ask you a question that doesn't appeal to you. 
It's not that easy, friends. It's not, I'll, I'll resist the devil. Well, the devil's smart. Genesis 3.1 says he's the craftiest of all the creatures. He knows how to tempt you. So the very question, did God really say, will apply to something in your heart that you want it to apply to and will inevitably tempt you to drift. So how is it that you can protect yourself from being swayed by that question away from God's truth and towards not having any truth at all? Well, the answer to that is protect the truth. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Lean in. Understand the truth. Understand what God says about all these different things. And as you guard the truth, you stay connected to the truth. Be intentional. Live on purpose. This is what I think is on the mind and on the heart of the Apostle Paul as he sits down and he pens this letter to his young protege, Timothy. And David told us about their relationship last week. This is someone who Paul cares deeply for. And he's living in a city that Paul cared deeply for. And he's a part of a church that Paul cared deeply for. I want to stress this because it's important for us to understand that there is intentionality because of a deep love that Paul has for the church in Ephesus. But also there is a strategy to it. Paul will say in the passage that we're going to look at that he wants the advancement of God's kingdom to take place. And strategically, this was a great place to do it. So much so that Paul spent more time in Ephesus than we know he spent anywhere else. Roughly three years, he would hunker down and begin to disciple and care for these people. That's important to note in just a moment. But a lot of your New Testament centers around what was happening in this big city. Okay? Acts chapters 19 and 20, they kind of introduce us to the city of Ephesus and this revival that takes place in the city. Paul then leaves in Acts chapter 20. He leaves Ephesus, but he writes a letter back to them that we call Ephesians. He'll then write after he sends Timothy to pastor and care for this church, which is also very important to keep a note of. Paul, Paul wanted Timothy to lead this congregation. He'll write these two letters back to him to help him do so, First and Second Timothy. Not only Timothy lived there, but the Apostle John, it's uh, recorded in history, camped out in Ephesus and pastored as well. So First, Second, and Third John written to Ephesus to spread out from there. In fact, church history tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, probably lived in Ephesus. So if you're in Ephesus and you've got a question about the Bible, you're probably going to be all right, right? You've got Paul, Timothy, Silas, John, Mary, the mother of Jesus. You want to go talk to his mom. She's right down there. Like that, This was a really incredible place to live, right? And then you have Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, where Jesus himself has a message for this church. And here's what's important to note. They didn't listen. These warnings, these instructions, this deep care, and they didn't listen. There's no church in Ephesus today. There's no thriving church there. So whatever we're studying through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, understand Paul wants us to heed this instruction better than they did in the long run. Because the further you drift from the truth, the harder it is to see it at all. And so he sits down and he pens this letter with a deep desire to, to, to correct some things he's heard. He's beginning to see, oh, they're drifting. They've been listening to the enemy. And before it gets too far down the road, I've got to write this letter to correct course. So I'm going to break it into three different parts. We're going to finish all of chapter one today. Okay? And it, it just flowed well that way. And as we finish chapter one, I'm not going to have you stand because we're going to read three different chunks. But if you have your Bible, 1 Timothy chapter one, we're going to start in verse three. As I urged you, when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. 
The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Now, as Paul starts this letter, David told us last week, he started in a customary way. He said, here's who I am, and here's who I'm writing to. When you study Paul's writing, what he typically does after that is he gets to a section in his writing where he'll address what's called typically Thanksgiving and prayer. So he'll tell the church he's writing to, here's what I'm so grateful for about you. Here's what I thank God for about you and my relationship with you. And then he'll tell them specifically how he's prayed for them and how he's grateful that they've prayed for him. And then he gets into the body of these letters. Why am I writing to you? Here's what it is. But in 1 Timothy, he skips the Thanksgiving and prayer section and he goes from here's who I am, here's who I'm writing to, here's what we got to talk about. And that's important because there's this urgency in Paul. He can't waste time. We've got to get to this because this is really important to deal with because if we don't deal with it, you're going to drift further and it's going to get way worse. And in verse 3, he identifies the purpose of the letter. He says there are some people that are teaching false doctrines. Now, the word doctrine simply means a, a set of beliefs that's held by an individual or a church or an organization. So you have this set of beliefs, and that set of beliefs really dictates a lot of what you do in your life. It should dictate all of it. So you'd say, this is my belief, and from my belief, you're going to see how my life kind of plays out based on my understanding of things. And so you have these two competing doctrines, okay, sets of beliefs. The Apostle Paul, when he came to Ephesus, came and gave them what he would call in this letter the gospel. The gospel, that word, when you read it in your New Testament, it just means the good news, The gospel of Jesus, the good news about Jesus, meaning this. They understood that the law, the set of rules in the Bible, were you're supposed to live up to all these rules if you want to be righteous. And all righteous means is right living. I'm living the right way before God. So the question is, how do you live a righteous life? And they would say, you have to obey the law perfectly. This is what the Bible says. If you can obey the law, here's what God says. You want to be holy, you want to be righteous, do all of these things, hundreds and hundreds of laws. The problem with that is what? None of us does that well. We break that law. And so Paul comes in and says, here's the good news, that even though you've broken the law, the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus says that he came and did what you couldn't do. He lived without breaking the law. So now, if you put your faith in him, what was counted towards him, which is righteous living, can be yours too. You can, even though you messed the law up, he has come and he has fixed everything that you broke. That's one doctrine that's being taught in the church in Ephesus. Well, then you have what Paul calls these false teachers. And they come in and they're like, yeah, that's good, Jesus, but you better obey the law. Because the only way for you to be righteous is for you to obey this law. So you need to come in, you need to obey the law, and they're emphasizing the law. And how does Paul contrast the two? Well, he contrasts them this way. He says, mine doctrine of Jesus is rooted in love. And it's really interesting. He says it's rooted in love that comes from a clear conscience, 
right? A pure heart and a sincere faith. The coupling of the word love and faith there in Paul's writing typically leads you to believe this. This is what he's teaching, that the faith in Jesus leads to acts of love, meaning my doctrine will lead you to be a loving person. And what he doesn't mean is really, really nice. Like I'm a nice guy. I treat people good. I pay for the person behind me in the drive-thru. Like I do the right thing. I'm good. I'm loving. That's not what he means. What he's saying is this, the type of acts that you do for other people rooted in this doctrine, leads them to be set free from having to obey the law to be righteous. Meaning I can love them in a way that without faith, I can't love them. The only way to love them in a way that sets them free from the bondage of the law is for you to have faith in Jesus and offer that to them. He says over here, what their doctrine produces, he'll call in the passage that we read, it's going to lead you to endless uh, conversation, like endless and meaningless talk and endless genealogies. And what that really means, endless genealogies, is the minutia of the law. Meaning all you're going to do is you're going to keep coming back to the law, and it's just this dramatic thing, and you're going to keep talking and keep talking and keep talking. It never leads you to love anybody because you can't set them free because you're not free either. And so he says that's what you have, these two competing doctrines. So when you read the word doctrine in First Timothy and in Paul's writings, that's what he means. My doctrine is the good news of Jesus. You've been set free. You can help other people become set free in Jesus. Their doctrine is you're held bondage by the law. You can't do it. And so you're not going to focus on anybody else. I mean, you're going to keep telling them to be held in bondage by the law. And then right there in verse 8, he doesn't discount the law. What he says in the law, he says the law is actually a really good thing when it's used properly. Meaning they're not using it properly. The proper understanding of the law, he says, is... It shows you how messed up you are and how in need of Jesus you are. Let me illustrate it for you this way. This is a picture of an MRI machine, okay? About two months ago, I went into one of those. Anybody been in an MRI machine? They're so fun, right? Like if you're claustrophobic. I actually fell asleep in the MRI machine and my arm dropped and I came to and I thought, they're going to make me start over. I moved, but they didn't notice. And so I just did one of these and tried to stay awake the rest of the time. I got out of that MRI machine a couple months ago, and they pulled out this big picture, this detailed image of my right knee. And they said, you tore your meniscus. You have a torn meniscus in your right knee. So then I said, well, put me back in the machine so it fixes it. That's not what I said, okay? I'm not the smartest, but I'm not that, like, all right? I didn't say that because that's not what I needed. It would be foolish for me to say, oh, thank you. My meniscus is torn. Put me back in there. No, I knew what they were going to tell me next. And the only way to fix what the MRI just told you is broken is you need a surgeon. And so the day after Christmas, me and that surgeon became buddies. And he went into my knee and he fixed what the MRI told me was broken, what had gone wrong. And the only way to fix what that MRI told me was wrong was to go to that surgeon. This is what Paul is trying to teach the church in Ephesus through Timothy. He's trying to teach them and remind them the law is an MRI. That's it. You're going in, you're putting your whole life into this MRI, and the law is saying, yeah, cheater. This is why he lists all those things. Sexually immoral, uh uh-huh, yep, practicing homosexuality, stealing from people, murdering, killing people, yep, that's where your heart went wrong. That's what's wrong with you. And then you get pulled out of the MRI, and you don't say, well, let me go back to the law to fix what the law told me was broken. Paul's saying that's a broken doctrine. That won't ever fix Right? And Paul says when he writes the church in Rome, what the law was powerless to do, God did. 
And he did it through Jesus, meaning you came out of that MRI machine known as the law. It told you that you're a sinner, that you're broken, and you're in need of a surgeon. And that surgeon came, and his name was Jesus. And he came in, and he fixed everything that the law told you was wrong with you. So when you put your faith in Jesus, everything that you know that you're wrong, incapable of doing on your own, he fixes for you. And he makes you whole, and he makes you complete. And this is what he's trying to tell him. He has this deep concern for this church. Like, you have messed up this doctrine, and you're going to drift further and further away from it. But he says, if you'll get the doctrine right, it's the foundation for everything else you're going to build in your life. Another word for doctrine some people use is worldview. And here's a definition of worldview, the way that you see the world. A worldview is the framework of our most basic beliefs, our doctrine. It is our doctrine, okay? And that doctrine, it shapes our view of and for the world, and it's the basis for all of our decisions and actions. So I'm going to illustrate that for you in a way. I borrowed this from a a professor named Bill Brown. Um, Anyone in the Colson Fellows program is going to recognize this, and I had Jason Lester, one of our elders, who's a graphic designer, make this for me, but not this image, the next one. But this is an iceberg, and so this is how we're going to illustrate this idea of why doctrine is so important to understand. It's not just a church word. It's really, really important. When you see the top of an iceberg, if you're out on the water, all you see is what's above the water. And you've heard this, I'm sure, that there's so much more to the iceberg that's going on underneath the surface of the water that you can't see that makes everything you see above the water, it makes it make sense. So what's going on under the water is more important even than what you see above the water because if you want to understand what you're seeing, you got to know what's underneath there. Right? And so what we see at the surface of the water is behavior. So when you rub shoulders with coworkers, right, when you're with family members and you see their behavior and the way they're behaving, they're not behaving like me and I wouldn't do that and they can't, I can't believe they made that bad choice. What we're judging is what's above the surface. And it's behavior. We all do it. I'm guilty of it, right? We're in an election year. You better believe that's what we're going to do, right? We're just coming in and we just all behavior. Everything that you see on the surface becomes how you completely and totally judge other people. And that's not okay. Because everything you see above the surface is impacted by everything going on underneath it. And it's true of every single one of us, regardless of your view of the world or the doctrine you hold to, that the behavior is a direct result of the values that you formed in your life. So right under the surface, when you see someone misbehaving or doing something you wouldn't approve of, Underneath that behavior is a value that they have formed in their life. So if you're seeing sexual promiscuity and poor sexual decisions on the surface, it's because they either, view, they either value acceptance and they'll do anything to get it or pleasure and they'll do anything to get it. That's a value that's formed. And if you'll go even deeper, which is really important for us to do, you get to doctrine because doctrine is the foundation that values are formed from. My understanding of truth, my understanding of the world forms the values that I hold dear that show themselves in the way that I behave. And it's true of all of us. So the behavior that you see on the surface is a direct result of the truth that you have accepted as true. Right? And so if I think this is what's true and I've come to understand it, this is true, it'll form a value that I have in my life and you'll see it play out in the way that I live, the choices I make, the way I behave. This is a strong point of emphasis for me right now in discipling my kids. Because as they're young and they're growing, they're forming their view of Christianity based only on what's above the surface. Naturally, we all do that, right? This isn't like a, an indictment. This is more of a, a reality. 
And I'm wanting them to say, okay, but if they're behaving that way, what's going on in their heart? What are they valuing in these moments? What do they value? And if they're valuing that, it's because they think this is what's true of the world. And the way to change the behavior is to get at the truth. And if we want our lives to be described as people who behave in such a way that we follow the Lord Jesus, then we need to get down to the truth and make sure that we're protecting it and guarding it and understanding it. So the question is, how do I do that? Because Satan the whole time is coming down to the bottom. We think Satan's only working above the surface. He's down there at the bottom whispering to you, did God really say? I mean, did God really say that? Because he knows if he can get you to question that truth, behavior will take care of itself. Did God really say that that's true? So how do we do it? How do we protect our mind and our heart from the tempting whisper of the enemy who says, depart from the truth? I think Paul gives us something here, verse 12. Look at how he describes it. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would come to believe in him to receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Wait, how does that answer that question? Here's how it does. Paul had an unbelievable, unbelievable, consistent connection to the idea of grace in his life. Grace is simply receiving a gift you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't obey something. You, didn't, you don't deserve it, and you get it anyway. It's an act of grace. And Paul never lost sight of the fact that he didn't deserve the life that he had. He's always connected to the life he had before Jesus. Before Jesus, I was this horrible, horrid person. I was incredibly bad. I hurt people, and I damaged people. But God gave me something I didn't deserve, doctrine worldview, and understanding that God did for him what he couldn't do for himself, and he never lost sight of that. And here's why that's important. It kept him humble enough to recognize he was only one or two decisions away from abandoning that truth. And so he consistently would come back to it, and he said, I just can't believe what God's doing in my life. I'm so grateful. I don't deserve it, but man, I'm so grateful for his grace. You can't lose sight of grace if you want to stay anchored to truth. You can't. You want to stay anchored to the truth of the gospel. You must stay connected to this idea that you don't deserve it. This is what he's impressing on Timothy. Look at how he finishes chapter one. Timothy, my son, that's a term of endearment. Deep love. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling a meaning, doctrine, so that you would remember the truth, Timothy. Why? So that you would fight this battle against the enemy who's whispering in your ear, that you would fight this battle well, holding to the faith with a good conscience. And then he says, some people have rejected this. And when they rejected that truth and they drifted far from it, like Pilate, they got to the place where they said, what's true anyway? And then look at how he describes their life. They have suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Their life completely fell apart. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to teach not to blaspheme. And what he says by that is this. I've handed them over. This is what they want. They can have it. And their whole life's falling apart. And I'm hoping that when their life falls apart, they will repent. Every time Paul talks about disciplining someone, the goal is reconciliation. 
Repentance and reconciliation. So he's hoping that Hymenaeus and Alexander will repent and come back. And so he hands them over. This is what you want. Watch your life fall apart because you're drifting from the truth. So if I could summarize 1 Timothy chapter 1, the heart of the Apostle Paul that sets up the rest of this letter, it's this. Guard the truth. Be intentional, church. When you come here for one hour and you sit in a room and we study God's word together, it's beautiful and it's powerful and it's effective. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It will pierce through your heart, pierce through your mind. And when you leave here, he's ready to whisper into your ear because he knows exactly where to tempt you. Did God really say this? You should be allowed to do whatever you want. And we begin to drift if we're not intentional with the word of God on our own. Protect and guard the truth. Let me close this way. This past week, I came home from work, and I walk into the kitchen, and in my marriage, I've learned to read my wife's face, and her face told me that it had been a day, okay? Let's just leave it at that. Fair enough? The husband's like, yeah, I know that look, right? It had been a day, and so I'm standing there in the kitchen, and she comes over to me, and she said this, here's what you should cover in family devotions tonight, I'm not kidding. Verbatim. She said, here's what you're going to cover in family devotions tonight. I'm like, okay. I said, what is going on? She's like, it's been a day. They're not treating each other the way that they should treat each other. So this is what you're going to cover in family devotions. And so when that happens, it doesn't happen a ton, right? I'm not trying to throw my kids under the bus. It was just a day where their relationships with each other were off. And if your kids haven't done it, you're just lying, okay? So (laughs) they just had a day. And so she said, this is what you got to do. And so my mind, when that happens, immediately always goes to, okay, I got to get them with a good story. And here's this text. I'm going to teach them. And I want to grab them and pull them in and make it great. And all I kept thinking was this. They just need to be reminded. That's it. Just remind them. And so I'm like, okay. And just hit me. They don't need some new truth, some new way of thinking. Some new th- they just need to be reminded of what's true. And so I sat them all in the living room. And I said, guys, here's what we're doing tonight for devotions. I'm going to read one verse. And you're not going to ask any questions. They ask a lot of questions most of the time. I love it. But tonight I say, hey, no questions. I don't always love it. Let me be honest. Most of the time I do. I don't always. But tonight I said, no questions. We're just going to sit here. And I'm going to read this verse. I'm going to read it three times. And each time I read it, I want you to simply think about one question. And you're not to answer this question out loud. Okay? I just want you to think about it as I read this one verse. Does this verse... Describe my life. That's all I want you to think about. We're not going to do anything else for devotions, and we'll, we'll pray after that, and that'll be it. I want you and your heart to wrestle with this verse. And so I read the verse. It came out of Philippians chapter 2. And it said, uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. And I read it a second time. And I read it a third time. And then we prayed. Later on, one of my kids would said, no, (laughs) it doesn't, right? But it needs to. It needs to describe. So I just say, so today, here's how we're going to close. I'm going to read a passage that's very familiar to you. And as I read it, you're going to be faced with two analogies in the teachings of Jesus. And when you study this in the original language, it says what it says. There's no special words. Doesn't require a ton of knowledge for you to be able to understand what he's saying. He's going to give us a real simple analogy, and he's going to describe two ways to live your life. And here's what I want you to do. I just want you to ask, which one of these analogies that Jesus is teaching describe the way I'm living? Okay? Which one of these analogies describe the way that I'm living my life? 
Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Which one of these describes the way that you're living your life? Protect the truth. Father, we thank you that you did not leave us alone in this world of darkness and temptation, of lies and deceit, but you gave us truth. You gave it to us in the form of your word. And God, I'm so grateful for your word, not because it's a rule book we have to live up to, because it's a guide, it's a lamp, it guides our feet in this dark world. It reminds us of what is true, that the good news of Jesus should be the doctrine, the worldview that forms our values and shows itself in how we live. And so, God, this week, may we be a people that guard our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus, that lean in to read and study your word, that we put effort into allowing our mind and heart to be shaped and molded by the truth of your word so that we can live lives that bring you honor and glory. But God, we need you to do that. And so we ask for you to guide our steps and lead us. And we'll trust you for that in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,